Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If we have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Ben, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Triumph. I typically spend uh, my weekends over at our East Campus in Moorhead, but I get the privilege and honor of being with you this morning. And so uh, thank you for hosting me, and uh, it's good to be able to be with you and share God's Word together. Uh, as we begin, I- I've got a question. We'll kind of uh, reference this by a show of hands, but I'm curious. Uh, how many of you in your lifetime have ever had to forgive someone? Someone. Anybody? Okay, there's a few hands. And then on the flip side of that, uh, how many of you in your lifetime have ever had to ask someone for forgiveness? Hands? Okay, I think that covers about most of us. Uh, those of you that didn't raise your hands, I, I want to know the secret uh, of that afterwards. So you can talk to me, right? Now, it doesn't take too long to, to think and to realize that forgiveness is actually a really important, essential part of life. It, it's kind of like the fabric that relationships are woven together with. Forgiveness kind of sets the standard for how we relate with and interact with other people. And yet, if you're honest with yourself, you recognize that that there are times when you feel like your forgiveness or your ability to forgive someone has a ceiling to it. That your forgiveness has a capacity. Maybe you've thought that before. Like, okay, this thing that this person said or did, I just can't forgive them for that. That is something that is just unforgivable. And if you made a list of things that you deemed as unforgivable, all of us might have a very robust and unique list. And as I was thinking about that this week, I wonder, well, what would be some of those like lesser known things that might make a list of things that are unforgivable, but maybe aren't so heavy, right? And so uh, how about some of these examples? Like, Uh, When somebody uh, does not clean up after their dog, after they leave a special delivery in your yard, like, is that something that is forgivable? I find it interesting that uh, I I don't own a dog, and yet I had to do that to my yard this year. Funny how that works, right? Or how about this one? Uh, Is it forgivable to wear white after Labor Day? Some of you are like, I don't even know that was a thing. Yeah, uh, I joined that club this week, right? But think about that. Is that forgivable? Or how about this one? When somebody ruins the plot line of a book or a movie before you get a chance to see it or read it, and and some of you are thinking, like, you're steaming already. You're going, like, there is absolutely no mercy for people that do that at all. How about this one? This is a a personal one of mine. I'll let you expose uh, myself here. But uh, it's when you're in a group chat or a group text and you're really making some headway on stuff, and then it's that one person that decides to treat the group text as an opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with somebody else in the group text, and you're getting all these notifications that don't even have to do with anything you've been talking about. Some of you know who you are, right? I will find you. No, don't. Okay? Or this one, where you've made a lot of headway on a group text, and, and it's like 1130 at night, and you're laying in bed, and you think the whole thing's over, and then all of a sudden, beep, or bzzz, And you look and it's somebody who just because they wanted to, I guess, either liked the last response that was given or gave a thumbs up emoji or an LOL. It's like, that is completely unnecessary. And I'm someone who hates notifications on my phone. And so to me, that just boils me, right? So uh, lesson learned, don't send Pastor Ben a group text and take me off the ones I'm on. Perfect. All right, we're good. If you had to narrow down the message of the Bible or the teachings of Jesus, I don't know that you could go very far before you stumble across forgiveness. Forgiveness is all over the Bible. In fact, Jesus talks about it all the time. 
Forgiveness is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith, and it's one of the things that set God's, sets God apart as unique. It's the fact that he is forgiving. But I wonder, perhaps you have wondered before, if God has limits to his forgiveness. Is there a ceiling to God's ability to show mercy and grace? Are there things that happen that he just goes, nope, I'm going to choose not to forgive that one, and so he doesn't. Is there such thing as an unforgivable sin? And if so, what is it? If you've been with us, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark as a church this last year, and, and we've gone back specifically the last couple of weeks to look at some of the really hard or difficult teachings of Jesus that are found within the Gospel of Mark. And we know that some of these things have been kind of spicy to talk about. We know one of the things that really drew people to Jesus was his ability to teach and talk about things that sometimes people didn't know exactly how to handle or deal with. Some people didn't know what to make of some of the things that Jesus said. And so it's within these times that we enter and we recognize that God's word does a good job oftentimes of really disrupting our lives and our understanding of things. And yet it's within those times that we recognize his grace to us and that this is his word, what the king says about these things. And so we humbly come to his word this morning looking at what's been, what's been deemed or come to known as the unforgivable sin. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in Mark chapter 3. And if you're using your Mark book like I have been, we're on page 20. And we're going to be reading verses 22 through 30. The words will also appear on the screen. Mark 3, starting in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, that's Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit." All right, so the setup to this scene is one that has kind of become very familiar to us as we've journeyed through Mark. It's Jesus teaching the crowds. It's Jesus performing miracles. It's Jesus healing people and casting out demons. And as Jesus traveled around and did these things, he undoubtedly got a lot of attention for the things that he was doing, especially attention from the religious people and religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so they would often send people out there to kind of investigate and check things out for themselves. And we see that as an example from today, where we've got a group of guys from Jerusalem who came to scope things out, and we recognize right away, we're told, that their intent for coming to see Jesus was not a positive one. That they had this preset, preconceived assumption when it came to Jesus, and it's this. They were convinced that Jesus was literally doing the work of the devil, they were assured and beyond confident that the work that Jesus was doing was just as evil or as rotten to the core as Satan himself. And they came to unfold and unmask that for themselves. 
But maybe as you read that, as we read that together, you think, well, that, 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 that accusation doesn't even really make sense. And Jesus quickly points that out to them. He says, guys, how does that work? How can Satan work against himself? And, and even if he was, how is that even a good strategy? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it's going to fall. And if both sides of the same house are working opposite one another, then the whole house is going to come crashing down. That doesn't, how does that work? We also hear Jesus respond to their accusation with a warning. And it's kind of a sobering one as we think about it as it pertains to maybe other people who might align their thinking with these scribes. Jesus' warning details to these guys how dangerously close they are to crossing this very serious line. We see it in verses 28 and 29. Jesus tells them, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So clearly this is where we get this term unforgivable sin or eternal sin. It's the kind of sin that, according to Jesus, never has forgiveness. And so for anyone who's sitting here that cares about having a right relationship with God, who cares about him forgiving them, a common question you're probably asking yourself or wondering would be like, all right, so how do I avoid committing this kind of sin? And maybe more specifically, how do I blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Well, just to put your minds at ease, if you're someone who at any point in your life has ever been worried about or concerned about and you've wondered, uh-oh, I wonder if I've done that. I wonder if I've committed the unforgivable sin. If you've ever wondered that, if you've ever worried about that, then the simple answer is you in fact have not. Just by the fact that you've worried about it or wondered if you've done it. There, we can go home. All done, right? No, not quite. There's more, right? So how does that understanding... How does Jesus' words here, how, how does this fit within the context as we see unfold in Mark 3? It's really interesting. Right before this happens, where the religious scribes come down and they accuse Jesus, we read that Jesus and his disciples arrived back in, their home, in his hometown, and, and this is what we read in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family, that's Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, <laughs> kind of interesting to note that, that there were even members of Jesus' own family who didn't fully understand or support him. There were members of Jesus' family who not quite sure what to make of this guy, and I don't know about this attention he's receiving. And so we see them trying to silence and, and subvert Jesus in a way. They try to take him away from the crowds. Like, oh, don't pay any attention to him. He's, he's just a little out of his mind. He's kind of crazy. Come on, Jesus. Now compare this response of Jesus' family to, to the one that the religious teachers gave him. And we see right away, they're not just suggesting that Jesus is crazy, or that people shouldn't listen to him. They went so far as to call Jesus possessed by the devil. They went so far as to say that the power and the ability that Jesus had to do these amazing things was a direct result of demonic authority. In fact, Mark tells us in verse 30 that these religious leaders had been telling everybody that, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's casting out demons, but he has an unclean spirit of his own. So it brings us back to this initial question that we posed of what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? 
And simply put, to blaspheme means to slander or defame someone. It's to misrepresent or or to say really outrageous things about another person. And and typically, this is a charge or an accusation that, that specifically refers to God. And so it's misrepresenting or slandering or speaking against God some, in some way. And so we think about how this scene has unfolded and we first see an, an evidence of blasphemy come from Jesus' own family. Right? They didn't recognize him for who he was. And we see that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. That the people that should know who Jesus is, the people that should recognize him, the people that should say, oh, that's who you are, the king, the son of God, they're the ones that don't get it. They're the ones that are blind or deaf to what Jesus is saying. And on the other hand, it's the people that shouldn't get it, the people that are on the outside, the people that were surprised, it clicks for them. And they recognize Jesus and can truly hear what he's saying and see him for who he is. And so this is no different. It's the case with some of the members of Jesus' family at this point. They had simply come to the wrong conclusions about who Jesus was. Now, it's not to excuse them or to say like, oh yeah, they just get off the hook because, okay, calling the son of God crazy and a little out of his mind, that's kind of a demeaning, outrageous thing to say, is it not? And yet we see that's a completely different kind of thing compared to the one that the religious leaders showed or had or communicated. For the religious leaders, they had this deep-seated hard-heartedness that had clouded their vision And it had closed their ears to the point where they willingly and persistently rejected seeing and hearing the truth about Jesus. These guys completely embodied this sober warning that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in in chapter 5 where Isaiah says, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. So not only do these guys openly reject Jesus, they count the work that he's doing as a work of Satan, as a literal work of the devil. They see something that is good, Jesus healing people and teaching about the things of God, and they see it instead as something that is to be opposed or destroyed. How backwards. So now this passage brings some clarity on this kind of sin, this quote-unquote unforgivable sin. And it's the reality is that some people can become so hardened and so set in their rejection of who Jesus is that they wrongly attribute the work that he's doing to the work of the devil. And this is a kind of sin that is intentional and it's persistent. It's not a one-time thing. It's to overtly go against and become numb to the work that God is trying to do and it's one that shuts him out completely. It's a sin of the utmost resistance and rejection and it's so rooted in unbelief that that the people who commit it are just unresponsive to their need for repentance and forgiveness. And so when Jesus says that this sin never has any forgiveness and it's an eternal sin, he's not saying that to to the fact that, oh, God just won't forgive them. It's that this person wants nothing to do with forgiveness. They want nothing to do with God's mercy in their life. They reject it completely. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You've been sitting here listening the last couple of minutes, and you're like, okay, that's, that's well and good. I've got peace that I have not committed this sin, and I've got pretty good confidence that I never will. And so uh, I'm struggling to connect here why this matters to me. 
And I had a feeling some people might be wondering that. And it makes me think, all right, if, this, if you're someone who's out there sitting, all right, this, this is not even on my sin radar. I do think Jesus' words of warning here should give us pause to consider our own lives because his warning that he gives to these religious leaders reminds us of how Jesus views all sin. How he views the seriousness of sin in our individual lives. Because the truth of the matter is all sin is a big deal to God. In fact, all sin is an offense and an attack on him and a rejection of what God has said. In fact, Jesus, he could have said that he could classify any sin as being unforgivable. He said, well, I'm not going to forgive that. He could do that, and he'd be entirely justified and right in doing that. Because the reality is, is that God doesn't blink, and he's never neutral when it comes to sin. He either punishes it or he forgives it, and there's no middle ground. The truth is all of us can just as easily have our hearts hardened to a point of feeling like, I've got nothing to repent, repent of. I've got nothing to feel sorry for. And so we recognize that Jesus isn't just calling out this one particular sin and leaving the rest like, oh, those aren't as big a deal. And yet when it comes to sin, we also recognize that just on one hand, people can say, yeah, I've got nothing to be sorry for. We also recognize there's the other side of people that become so zeroed in on their failure and on their brokenness that they, they can't see past their sin to the mercy that is promised and is waiting for them. And we see a perfect example of that in our text for today. If you were to look, if we were to reread our text from Mark 3, uh, and as you were reading it, like what was the first thing that probably caught your attention? It's probably at the very end, we're like, oh, there's this unforgivable sin, this eternal consequence thing that, that never has any forgiveness. And you probably would have noticed that even if this sermon didn't have a title to it. But people skip over, at least I did the first time, People skip right over what Jesus says right before that part, which ends up being the most important thing that he says to the group that's there that he's saying for us today. He says, look at verse 28. Jesus says, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. What? How incredible is that? That in his kindness and in his mercy, there is no sin that God cannot and will not forgive. That in his grace, all sin can be forgiven. And that can be a mystery. At least it is to me. And there might be times where that just seems downright unfair. But in his power, God is somehow able to redeem anything and anyone. Even people that don't know how to use group text properly. He can forgive them too. And so as we are confronted by our sin, as we feel the weight that it brings upon us, that is placed on us, as we're honest with ourselves and honest with God, he always receives our ask for his forgiveness. And he'll never turn us away. In fact, you will not find a single example in the entire Bible where God denies forgiveness for someone who asks him for it. 
And to go even further, God is somehow even able to take those things that have been our failures and have been pieces of our broken past. He, he can even take those things and showcase them and turn them and transform them into something that, that shows off his grace that he gives to us in front of other people. And the Bible gives us a really powerful example of this from the person whose name is Paul. Paul is one of these religious leaders, not in this particular group that came to Jesus, but he's of this group that is completely opposed to Jesus. He is anti-Jesus. Paul spends many years of his life trying to shut the church down and hunt Christians down and put them in prison and just get rid of the talk of Jesus. And so if anyone who was running the risk of committing an unforgivable sin, Paul would have probably been example A. And yet, we read that on one of his journeys to a city called Damascus, Jesus shows up and meets Paul on the road and completely transforms his life and turns it around. Paul now goes from someone who's been anti-Jesus to one of the biggest cheerleaders for Jesus. Paul travels all around the known world starting churches and, and sharing the good news and he ends up writing almost half the New Testament. What a transformation. And here Paul described his own words of this transforming grace and mercy that he receives from God. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That work of mercy is one that only comes from what the Lord can do in someone's life. It's a work that he can do and is doing in your life and in mine as we recognize our need for his forgiveness. As we close this morning, I want to draw us to one more passage that talks about God's gracious ability to forgive. And it's from one of his closest followers, a guy named John. In 1 John 1, John writes this. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what does this mean? It means that God's grace and mercy has infiltrated our world in a way that even the worst of sinners can be redeemed and find forgiveness. It means that God's approval of you and of me has nothing to do with the basis of our behavior or how perfect we have our lives. It's entirely in his mercy and grace to us. It means that God can somehow redeem your struggles and my struggles and your sin and my sin and the failures that we have in our life as we bring those things to him. And it means that God is able to forgive you 
of all your sins, even that sin, whatever that sin is for you. That's why it's called good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your mercy as it shows up in our lives. And for many of us in this room, Lord, we recognize that uh, life does not always paint a pretty picture of our behavior and our attitudes, our choice of words. Lord, we confess that at our core, we are sinful, broken people. And so, Lord, as we are confronted by that reality in our lives, we also focus on who you are in the redeeming work that you have done for us through your Son and how you call us forgiven children. So uh, we, thank, we, we are so thankful for this gift of grace and mercy and compassion and kindness that you give to us as we seek you, knowing that you'll never turn us away. So thank you for your forgiveness this morning. In your name I pray, amen.